This is the Saxo Market Call, the daily financial markets podcast across asset classes and around the world. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call. It's Tuesday, 7th of March, 2023. We saw markets trying to extend the rally yesterday uh, in the U.S. at least after that big prior day uh, pop uh, and where we sort of exited that key sort of downside pivot area we were interacting with uh, when we got some relief on the yields front. And yesterday, bonds and uh, yields were sort of, uh, sorry, bonds, uh, equities and yields were largely mirror images of one another. So the equity rally tried to extend higher uh, as yields dipped further. And then both sort of uh, uh, reversed into the close. So we were pretty much unchanged in the U.S. Uh, equity market. And likewise, on something like the 10-year uh, benchmark, it really feels like we have a lot of incoming uh, event risks to, to absorb in coming days to a couple of weeks. Uh, as mentioned yesterday, we have Fed Chair Powell out two days of testimony starting today. I think this is largely political theater. Um, as, as mentioned, I'm not expecting huge signals from there, but the market respects the event risk itself. And then the Friday jobs data, next Tuesday CPI, and so on. Um, so, Peter, we're, we're all waiting here. We're mid-range. Uh, arguably, bulls might say, well, we need to vault above the 61.8% retracement to 4,100 area. And to suggest we're going to make a challenge of the highs. But it really, I mean, looking back even several months, this is a very indecisive uh, equity market, at least in my book, uh, and, and from a technical point of view. Yeah. Um, we had that big jump on, uh, on on Friday, and we extended, as you said yesterday. We were pushing higher in today, much higher, actually, than where we closed, because we closed almost at the Friday's close uh, in yesterday's session. And uh, we extended that momentum, as you say. And I, I agree. The 4,100 level is uh, is also where I have my... my um, where I'm looking for uh, for you know a sustained sustained rally here. I think the the theme around structural inflation and these uh, long uh, bond yields is still what will drive equities. I've said that for quite some time now. I, I don't think it's really equities that is in the or in the driving seat here. Uh, if you look at the session yesterday, luxury and defense were our two best theme baskets um, on the uh, on the one day performance there. And then in the in the bottom, you there was no real hadn't yesterday i think it was a very you know just uh, all over the uh, all over the place uh, session and with no real big moves ex- maybe except for the next gen medicine basket which was uh, the biggest absolute mover down more than two percent but um there was one interesting area and that's some- something we track uh, across the theme basket we'll get back to that because i think it's a uh, it's part of this u.s china tension confrontation call or what you will um but um, that, that has some implications for the acquisition yesterday yeah, and we talked yesterday as well about something I think it's very interesting going on in the background, and that is a, a steady rise in some of the inflation expectations, uh, it, at least in pockets. Uh, so we're, we're going to need to track that, and we'll put up a tracker of some for, uh, form in coming podcasts if that trend continues. For now, I, I thought it was maybe a bit interesting, especially given the Reserve Bank of Australia meeting overnight, to look at where the central banks are priced in terms of further uh, policy <clears throat> adjustments and generally in tightening in the direction of tightening uh, for those that have a uh, you know, a decent forward market in terms of these expectations. So I look on slide three, and I've taken uh, the ones from the world interest rate probability chart uh, in Bloomberg, uh, where there's a, you can get a beat, you can draw a beat on where or how much further tightening is priced in through, for example, the September meeting, all the central banks uh, for the currencies or for the, for the countries mentioned here, have a September meeting with the exception of the RBNZ, which has an August meeting. Um, <clears throat> and you can see that the, uh, the ECB is priced the most aggressively of all the, the major central banks. 155 basis points of further tightening between now and September equates, of course, to th- about three fifty basis point hikes. 
The Fed down there at sub 90 basis points, uh, the Bank of England a little bit below that. And uh, Australia, look at the huge dip there from, uh, you know, basically from getting close to 1% or 100 basis points of further tightening. Of course, the 25 basis points of that drop is because they actually did a tightening, which means it drops out of the September um, uh, view because this is additional tightening, but all the way down to 40 basis points. So essentially, the RBA is saying it is looking for a pause if you read between the lines. They're looking for an excuse to pause. They didn't say they were going to pause, but they introduced some new language saying not just about how much they're going to tighten, but when and how much. And that when was, was a re the read on that was that, that means that they're going to pause at least for a meeting here to assess, in, uh, assess incoming conditions. So what we have to wonder is who's wrong here? Is it the Bank of England? Uh, sorry, the Bank of Canada, which has gone into uh, a pause mode essentially only priced for maybe another rate hike out for even a year forward. Uh, Australia increasingly priced for a pause, et cetera. Or is it the, the Feds and ECBs uh, that are right? And what about the Bank of Japan sitting down there basically still at 10 basis points, which would bring their policy rate only back to zero? This will be critical. And uh, what will determine that, of course, is the incoming data, the inflation data, and inflation expectations. So we're going to have to uh, draw a beat on that. And that is going to be a critical debate point in the coming uh, quarter or two. Uh, Peter, you and I had a lot of a uh, discussion, a complete change of subject here, on uh, on China's move here, on the China reopening move, and to what degree uh, China is sensing or showing concerns on demand slowdown for their uh, for their exports. So take us through what, you, what you've uh, pulled out on the data front and, and your argument here. Yeah, it's a um, it's uh, we're on slide four in today's slide deck, and it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a chart that shows the <clears throat> EU exports and imports uh, to China in percentage of nominal GDP. So all figures are nominal, and um, the reason why we came across this um, this time series is simply because John, we we had a discussion about what what is the theme for our next quarterly outlook, and I won't uh, do a spoiler here, but um, <laughs> but part of the discussion led me in this direction, and. Uh, I just find it because we talk about you know this uh, this confrontation between the U.S. and China, and we have the war in Ukraine, and, and, and you know the the world seems to be decoupling to some extent. And I just looked at this, and this is one way of of, of showing you know how important uh, cross border trading is, and it, it takes the combined trading between the EU and China in percent of GDP. And I think the irony here is that from late uh, late 2010 to the fourth quarter of 2019, so almost a decade. There was very little upward move in the combined trade between the EU and China. It had basically grinded to a halt after a very, um, you know, significant improvement from around one percent of EU GDP was uh, doing due to trading with uh, China to around four percent at the uh, on the back of the um, of the financial crisis. And then came the pandemic, and we rallied very hard. We've never seen an expansion in trade between the EU and China to this in in, in this magnitude, on this magnitude. Sorry. Uh, not even since the bull, uh, the bull years of uh, the roaring years of China's economy before the before the great financial crisis. And and I said to you, John, I find it very uh, weird. And it's also an, an, quite an irony when we are talking about maybe getting less dependent on each other. And now we're seeing this underneath these numbers. And this will be my final point. <clears throat> you can see actually that in the fourth quarter of last year, um, the imports into the EU, imports from China into the EU, actually fell by. 25%. It was. It is the biggest decline in imports from China 
since 2002. It even drove the two uh, the two de- uh, quarterly declines we had during the financial crisis. So something really ugly happened in the fourth quarter of uh, of, uh, of last year. And of course, I think it was with a lag, a little bit of the impact from the energy crisis in, in, in Europe. I think a lot of businesses maybe and consumers were, were pausing a little bit. We also saw economic activity dip in Europe. But but the biggest quality decline in imports from China, I think it must have been filled in China in terms of economic activity. Uh, setting off the alarm bells there. And, uh, you know, you do see the the ups and downs in this data series. It would be very interesting if this extends uh, in the same direction for another quarter uh, rather than just seeing another sawtooth back and forth. But it is a key point and uh, for uh, and reason behind what China is uh, is doing here and signaling that it wants to resume its its growth path and get back on the uh, uh, yeah get back into growth after this crazy zero COVID era and and all the all else that has brought with it. And Ola, you mentioned as well you've been tracking the container shipping uh, as one of those signs of how demand is doing uh, out of China. And those those prices have completely normalized back to uh, pre pre pandemic levels, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and uh, I think if I can't remember how far back we need to go, but at least the last uh, six months, uh, I think we only seen maybe one week where the price was actually showing a small increase. Otherwise, it's just been a continuous uh, decline. And uh, yeah, we are back to uh, to pre-pandemic levels on on the on the cost, and that does obviously reflect as well the the lower the lower tonnage that's uh, being being shipped uh, to and from. And meanwhile, we're waiting for the China reopening story to continue to show up more forcefully into various commodities markets. We've talked a lot about copper. It's just seesawing back and forth as well. Uh, crude oil uh, on the bid yesterday, what was uh, behind behind that move? Well, it, it, I think just a general risk appetite uh, or returning risk appetite we saw coming through the stock market uh, last week, uh, tats off the dollar, and just also the market getting, some getting caught short on Friday following that Wall Street Journal news about uh, the UAE contemplating leaving the OPEC Plus or OPEC Plus. Uh, corporation, uh, so that that basically gave it the uh, gave it the, bo- the the boost, and uh, we we're now we're now back to testing some uh, some resistance levels. We can see here on slide seven, uh, but overall this is mar- this market is going nowhere fast as far as I can see. We are stocking the range, uh, although the it it does we still favor the upside eventually, uh, but uh, I think that now is not the time, uh, at least not yet. So uh, we'll we'll watch that for further developments. A market that's also been um, been having some some trouble finding the right direction recently has been natural gas. Well, actually, up until uh, a month ago, the direction was one directional uh, down, and uh, since then we had a a fifty plus percent uh, rally, and uh, we gave back half of that within just two trading sessions. It just highlights a market where we are we're getting into the to the end of the the uh, heating season, and uh, we're getting to towards the the time where inventory is starting to be rebuilt. And as you can see on the inserts there on slide seven, uh, we are we the inventory levels in the U.S. are not coming down at the pace that uh, was otherwise expected for this time of year. Even though LNG export is ramping up, so um, gas is uh, gas is struggling to find a find some momentum here. Amazing bounty in the U.S. Uh, shale patch, I suppose, is what's that what that's a sign of. Yeah, and I think the 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 bounces is based on on expectations or some some signs that we are we're seeing production potentially starting to be negatively impacted by these very low prices. Uh, production has been on the uh, suffering somewhat uh, recently, but at the same time, if demand is not strong enough to to uh, to offset it, then uh, then the price will be as volatile as, as it is right now. All right, and then on wheat, uh, we're continuing to break down there. It looks like uh, I'm amazed by this uh, chart. Uh, obviously, uh, the the massive spike was there on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We fully unwound that already 
looks like heading into Q3 of next year, but now we're even posting uh, posting new lows. It's it's great news for for food security, but uh, what's what's behind this? Well, it's just uh, Russia simply continues to offload its uh, its record crop from last year. Um, they need to get uh, this, the silos uh, emptied before the next crop comes in later this year. Uh, so that's uh, there's a lot of availability uh, available supply on the market. Uh, Russian crop is the cheapest, so uh, European prices and U.S. prices has to come down accordingly in order to stay competitive. At the same time, we've had the news uh, uh, from Australia that their wheat crop was uh, is, is expected to hit a, have hit a, a new record uh, this this current season. Um, against that, the the grain exports from Ukraine, which is down twenty six percent according to the latest estimate from the government there, and um, but the market at the same time also looking for an extension of this uh, grain corridor, safe corridor deal that expires later this month, and that will continue to see grain flow out of Ukraine, albeit at a slower pace than what we were used to. And this does just put in the the WASTI expectations. Uh, we have the monthly report out tomorrow from the USDA, US Department of Agriculture. I think the main focus is really the uh, the the impact of drought and uh, heat wave in, us, in Argentina on its corn and soybean crop. And you can see that in the bottom right there on slide six, that the surveys are looking for a 7.5% reduction in corn corn uh, stocks and a 10% reduction in, in soybeans. So that potentially could have an, have an impact. But uh, again, this is what's been priced in already. So so if it's less than that, then the market potentially could could suffer some some additional losses. So the Australian wheat crop, I, I assume some of that is done well because of the wetter seasons down there. But we have a big shift going on climate-wise, don't we, with uh, this weird, what has it been, a three-year La Nina that uh, is associated with cooler conditions in the Pacific. I can't remember all the different patterns. But uh, are there not signs that it is drawing to a close this finally this uh, this three year cycle? That is that is correct. Uh, there is uh, there are some speculation that we could uh, head in the other direction uh, at least during the second half of this year. If that turns out to be the case, then uh, Australian exports likely could suffer uh, somewhat. There are actually some forward looking expectation that they could, they could see a twenty percent drop in exports. So um, so that's what most certainly one we need to keep an eye on because that that could change some of the patterns that we've been used to now for the past few years regarding uh, the outlook for, for production in various places in the world. And uh, Asia potentially could be the, the one that, uh, that that suffers the biggest impact from a, from a change. All right. Now, Peter, on your stocks to watch today, I'm going to take your last story first because I think uh, there's a lot of engagement and interest in that one. That's the TikTok ban. Uh, where are we in this? Uh, I, I actually hadn't realized uh, to how advanced this had gotten in, in the EU, and now it's getting a, a heated discussion in the U.S. on the potential for for banning this uh, this social media app, which is of course owned by a Chinese company. Yeah, so the um, there's an EU Parliament ban already across three uh, major institutions in the EU Parliament. Um, we have seen here in Denmark as well uh, a ban has been uh, uh, introduced in the uh, in the government sector. And uh, we're seeing the same moves across a lot of EU countries. So, and it is the same ban that they're considering or is pushing forward in the US. Uh, a bill is coming through very soon, which is also focusing on on government uh, employees or government workers' uh, usage of of TikTok, which is this very popular, very almost addictive uh, social media. Almost, I said almost. Um, I want to. Be, I don't want. To sound, I want to sound <laughs> too certain. Um, but uh, very successful. It. it 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 is TikTok that crippled to some extent Meta's uh, social media uh, momentum uh, because it was such so much better an offering uh, to young people and it really lured people away from from Meta's social media platforms. 
So this is getting traction, and I think it's 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 not only a one way direction where it's only the U.S. and and, and Europe that is, that is afraid of of Chinese data. It certainly the paranoia goes the same uh, goes also from China towards uh, the Western uh, Western countries. You see, a couple of weeks ago, China announced that the state owned enterprises are no longer allowed to do auditing with the the big four, which is Ernst and Young, Deloitte, etc. So the uh, because of the risk to data, so. <clears throat> this decoupling across different areas of technology. So we have seen it with semiconductors. We've seen it in in key uh, areas, and now also in social media. Will I think it just it just underpins this this o- overall tr- uh, trend that we have uh, we see. And both Snap, Meta, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, and Pinterest rallied yesterday pretty extensively. And the estimate so far is that actually Alphabet or Google. Uh, in its YouTube business uh, is the one that it will gain the most actually from from uh, from a ban because TikTok is very much video driven. Uh, I happened I, I don't have uh, kids that are old enough to have TikTok, so I don't really know anything about this uh, the the uh, what is it the user experience of TikTok. Um, I, I know insufficient myself, being a, of the age I am. Oh, <laughs> we won't go the, deeper into that, but take take us through uh, the rest of uh, of your stocks to watch today. Yeah, it's just two very quick company news. So one, Carlsberg, the CEO there, which has been very successful in recent years in, in streamlining and, and making this uh, European brewer more efficient, has announced this morning that he's retiring by the end of Q3. So that could be a little bit of a, of, a, of impact there in the stock. And then HelloFresh, which is the world's largest milk kit deliverer, if you will. Uh, the shares are down 10, 12%, give or take. Uh, last time I checked, uh, weaker than expected fiscal year 23 day outlook so still profitable but the the market had had higher hopes and i think maybe to some extent you know what what are you buying if you're buying hello fresh you're buying convenience um and 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 you don't you know all the effort of, of doing the grocery shopping and and finding list of food to do but on the other hand it's also a little bit more expensive than if you do it yourself so there is probably a slight negative effect i suspect from from uh, from higher inflation uh, and all is showing me desperately this chart that the the stock is rallying Pretty, uh, pretty uh, aggressively from uh, from the opening print, which was significantly lower. So seems like investors are trying to digest what to take out of it um, for HelloFresh. I will mention that I should mention that if you look at HelloFresh from a from a valuation perspective, it's 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 not you know it's profitable and it's not outrageously uh, expensive versus the cash flow. So maybe maybe investors are relax a little bit after the initial shock here. Yeah, I've uh, used their service a bit before, and you're also buying a lot of mayonnaise when you buy HelloFresh. Um, and maybe some health concerns <laughs> linked to that. <laughs> but uh, earnings to watch, I think we've previewed this twice, uh, some of these names on the yeah. earnings watch. So maybe if, if you want to zero in on anything uh, today specifically. No, it's uh, I have mentioned, so you can go back. I mean, the only thing is CrowdStrike. I, I write about it again in the, in the quick take. Uh, a lot of focus on the outlook, obviously. They just recently struck a deal, a partnership deal with Dell Technologies uh, selling on-premise uh, cybersecurity solutions. It could give them a little bit more uh, exposure in, in, in that part of the overall cybersecurity business, but otherwise demand is just extremely strong. And just, just alone the last two weeks, a lot of new cybersecurity attacks and, and threats um, around the world. And it's just, if not number one, then at least in the top three of concerns for any uh, board of directors in any big company and government around the world. So this is just a very hot topic still. All right. And the macro calendar, we've previewed a lot of this as well. Australia's RBA is out speaking. Uh, Australia RBA is low. The governor is out speaking tonight or tomorrow in the Asian session. And again, if, if, if these uh, central banks that are pausing now are making a policy mistake, then Australia is uh, at the forefront of that, together with the Bank of Canada, who's very insistent they want to pause now as they're 
fearing the galloping implications of rising mortgage rates on consumption, on confidence, and on growth into the economy. So these these smaller open economies are really the ones shielding their eyes the most on that front. U.S. way less impacted because many people reset their fixed rate mortgages during the pandemic at very, very low levels. And it's only the, the new person coming on online for the needing a new house that has to pay these new rates, not people holding their existing mortgage. So that impact there is far, far less than it is nearly, uh, well, not nearly everywhere else, but in many, many other places. Fed Chair Powell out uh, testifying today. We always need to pay attention. It's a long appearance before these uh, uh, the Senate panel today, uh, a House panel tomorrow. But again, political theater, I think, is my my default uh, expectation there. We do have some Treasury uh, auctions picking up today. So we've been twitchy around that uh, 4% level on the 10-year. Could see some uh, volatility there, depending on the, the course of these auctions. Three-year today, 10-year tomorrow, and a 30-year on Thursday, pay attention to that. And really the macro events and the macro day of the week is still Friday with that Bank of Japan meeting. We'll talk more about that with it being Kuroda's uh, final meeting and, and then the U.S. jobs report. I think with that, we'll call it a wrap. We will be back tomorrow with the Saxo Market Call. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com.